friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears, ladies and gentlemen. You are listening to the MC Lars podcast. This is episode 70. It is December 30th, 2019. We got one more day left after today in the decade, and then it's the roaring 20s, bro. That is crazy. Um, so this week, I want to give a shout out to the Patreon supporters who have made this episode possible. Shout out to some of the old ones, Matt, Diane, and Jennifer. And shout out to the new ones, Morgan, Jeff, and Johnny. I'm going to be on tour. I'm doing, I did two shows over the holidays, and I'm doing some shows in February with Schaefer, the Dark Lord, and the Double Clicks. I'm just going to run through real quick. Uh, the tour starts February 5th in Boston. Then we go to Brooklyn, Philly, Baltimore, Carborough, North Carolina, Orlando, Atlanta, Austin, Dallas, Oklahoma City, Kansas City, Minneapolis, Chicago, Cleveland, Ann Arbor, Columbus, Rochester. So nerdcoretour.com for dates. The double clicks are only on the last week, um, but it's going to be awesome. It's I'm calling it the Baby Yoda 2020 campaign trail. So be sure to check that out. And um, I want to talk a little bit about why I wanted to talk to Carl. So Carl's an interesting dude. He put out a lot of music. He put out Wesley Willis's stuff, Cool Keith. We've done a bunch of projects together. For a minute, he almost signed Grand Buffet. Um, as you heard on a previous podcast, he signed Rappy McRapperson and put out his whole catalog. And Carl's one of those guys where, you know, he was at my wedding. Um, we stayed friends. We're business and friendship connect. He's always been there for me. He's always been a good guy. And he's like an example of how you can meet good hearted, wonderful people in the music industry of which he is a part. So this is my interview with Carl Capriolio. And uh, it's kind of interesting that we're playing this around the holidays because he talks about how his one of his biggest compilations had a Dave Bo David Bowie, Bing Crosby Christmas collaboration. So he talks about that. And uh, yeah, so this is my interview with Carl Capriolio. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with an old friend. Not that he's old, but we our friendship <laughs> is old. And um, he's done a lot for me in my career. And he was at my wedding. And I consider him a good friend. Get up for Carl Capriolio. What's up, Carl? Hey, hey. I am doing fantastic on a somewhat rainy day here in Las Vegas. It doesn't rain often in Vegas, does it? No, we don't get a whole lot of rain. We get ridiculous heat. That is our big claim to fame is 115 degree days where you open the front door and it's like someone is standing there with a blow dryer. <laughs> does it? I, I remember once, actually, speaking of that, we had a fun Las Vegas day, Warp Tour day off. We went and you took me to lunch and we went and saw the Simpsons, Simpsons house in Henderson, right? Yeah, I tell people about that, and they go, that doesn't really exist. I said, yes, it does. MC Lars and I went and found it. It's real. And Matt Groening signed the uh, sidewalk. Like, he did, drew a little Homer, I think, right? He did, but it looks like whoever owns the house now, it doesn't, it looks like they're trying to disguise it, maybe, that they just don't want that many people coming by and having a look at their Simpsons house all day long. So it's kind of blended into the neighborhood, but the sidewalk tells the real story. You wouldn't know necessarily unless you were looking for it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I had no idea. I'd lived here for years, and I didn't know until you told me. I guess it was to promote this development as Vegas was, I guess, when, gosh, when was that, the 90s, maybe? 
um, or early 2000s, Vegas was like, it's been a growing community for, for decades, hasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Everybody's expanding uh, out to the west in a city called Summerlin and to the south uh, in a city called Henderson. So this was on the Henderson side of things. So you've been in Vegas, what, about a decade or how long have you been out there? Uh, I was here kind of part-time back and forth. I had a little crash pad here in 2014 and then uh, 2015 I was here full-time. So it's been about four years or so full-time. It just seems like it's a trend for people who are creative entrepreneurial people like yourself to have been decentered by like all the well, just California is just is a, is a hard place to maintain a business as a independent business owner, and um, like people moving to Oregon, people even moving to Northern California. It seems like it's a smart move to not stay in California. I don't know what brought you to Vegas, but it seems like it's a trend with a lot of my friends leaving the state. Yeah, I, you know, I hate to start off on a negative note, but LA was getting to be a little bit too much for me. It's very overcrowded. And like if I was taking a lunch meeting in Hollywood, I would have to budget 90 minutes or more to get there and mm. then 90 minutes or more to get back. And I was late to meetings that I left for two hours ahead of time uh, because you just never know. You could run into some crazy traffic and uh, it, it's I just didn't like the the vibe. It was getting to be a little bit much. So People that move to more remote locations nowadays, I could really work from anywhere. I took a vacation to Europe uh, for about a month and a half, and I decided I wasn't going to tell anybody I was gone except my immediate family. My kids would have freaked out, but uh, <laughs> so no one really knew. I got into a nice schedule. I was in the south of France, so I uh, I would have the morning to myself, and then by noon or so, uh, the emails and calls would start coming in, and no one knew where I was. It was fantastic. So. I did realize that I could work pretty much anywhere. And now that everything is online and it's easy to uh, connect without physically being there, it, it almost really doesn't matter where you are these days. And I appreciate that part of it. You're living the dream, Carl. No, I don't know about that. <laughs> but I do, I do love seeing people. And uh, coming out to your wedding is a, a good example of how I, I decided to keep in touch with the people that are close to me in my life. And even though I am a, a bit remote and people take vacations to Vegas all the time. So I see family and friends as much now as I ever did, but it's usually they're here mm. for a wild weekend uh, of drinking and debauchery and <laughs> I have to go back to work. So <laughs> it's a, uh, I do get to connect. And uh, part of my promise to myself was that I was going to spend more time uh, going on uh, excursions with people and spending quality time with them rather than just kind of the day to day time. You know, that's something I always appreciate about our friendship and our business relationship is that we've always made time to stay in touch and you always care about the people you work with. And I think that's something special about you, Carl, that like you are not just doing it for the business reasons. It's not like you ever made a f like much, if any money working with me, but you've invested in our, our friendship. And like, I think that is something that I don't know. I, I would say it's kind of rare in the music business. I'll just go out and say it, you know, that people keep in touch like this. So I've been super lucky where uh, I've been able to work with some pretty big names that have helped to pay the bills. And in the meantime, I can work on projects that I personally care about and with people that I personally care about. And uh, if there's anything I can look back on in my career, uh, I'm very I feel very fortunate 
that I have that luxury and that it doesn't always work that way in business. Sometimes I have friends that are working with people that they absolutely hate every day. And, mm. uh, you know, even not every project works out and is profitable, but in the big picture, things kind of work out. You do some things, uh, you kind of grit your teeth and do them. And then other ones, uh, you know, I can't wait to do like all of the projects we've done together, whether they made money or broke even, uh, it, it almost didn't matter to me because it was just part of the art and part of the our friendship. And that means a lot to me. Hey, that's nice. Thank you, Carl. That's awesome. Um, I, w- I want to dive into like your story, man, because I, I don't know. There's I know about your career as a person who started his own label and um, like went into the digital sphere. But I don't know much about your like your life. So where did you grow up and like what got you into music? As when you were a young kid? Well, I was born in Inglewood, California, of all places. And uh, my family lived nearby in Hawthorne, uh, just a couple of blocks away from where the Beach Boys were at the time in the 1960s. And uh, we pretty quickly moved to Torrance, which is a little suburb of L.A. uh, near the beach, a little southwest of L.A. And uh, the way I got into the music business is pretty roundabout. Uh, in high school, uh, my one of my good friends, Scott Ramsey, had a DJ business and he was DJing parties and that sort of stuff. And he was working with his dad. And at some point, his dad just was no longer interested in uh, kind of the grind of DJing backyard parties for $50. So Scott <laughs> told me, hey, if you buy a truck, we'll be business partners. I'm like, okay. So I did. So I bought a, an old Ford van with a three-speed transmission that you shifted on the steering column. And we started doing house parties and we were playing mostly kind of 80s new wave stuff because we were big K-Rock fans at that point. And then at some point, uh, we had two gigs for one night and we're like, okay, what do we do now? (laughs) So, all right, let's buy it. Let's cobble together another sound system and I'll go do one and you go do the other. And things just started growing from there. We ended up doing uh, weddings and more sophisticated bookings. Uh, But the pinnacle of the business for me and what eventually led me into the record business was we started to develop uh, relationships with the local radio stations in LA. And we were the uh, official mobile DJ service for 92.3 The Beat, Power 106, and K-Rock. So if someone called K-Rock and said, we want uh, Richard Blade or the poor man at our prom, Telephone operators would go, we don't do that, call these guys. And they would call us. And so we'd provide the sound equipment, lighting, wireless microphone. The DJ would show up in bare feet or whatever. We would just hand them the microphone and they would do their thing for the middle two hours of a four hour gig. And we would do all the rest. And the DJs loved it. They didn't have to lug around equipment or choose music. They could do as much or as little as they wanted. So uh, the company got pretty big. Uh, doing that kind of stuff. What was it called? Uh, it was the original version of it was called Amnesia. <laughs> of all time. But the wedding, yeah. the wedding clients were very worried about a, a DJ service called Amnesia <laughs> showing up at their right. wedding. So we, we did uh, weddings and stuff like that under the name DJs to go. It's kind of like a little bit more of a McDonald's approach to things. Mm. But eventually the DJ biz just wasn't really for me and kind of became a chore. And Scott and I had different ideas about how to move forward. So the business was much more sentimental to him. So uh, I sold my half to Scott and I used that money to start the record label. 
and that's that's how the label got started and the last thing I did with the DJ business before I left was I converted all the sound systems from vinyl to CD, which was all the rage uh-huh. in 1992. So I knew exactly what was not available on CD in 1992. So I started the label to just release what I could not find on CD. And we had, Brilliant. To, we had to buy German imports and all these other imports just to get the songs we wanted. So the label really started out just to fill that need. And my earliest releases were like dance remixes or dance versions or extended versions of all those 80s K-Rock hits. So you kind of started like Dr. Dre in Southern California, DJing parties, <laughs> and then and then going in to start a label with like some of the street money from that. That's well, interesting, man. We are both from the hood, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but like, that's cool that you saw a, you saw a hole in the market. And as the technology was shifting, you realized what the market needed and through your love and like encyclopedic knowledge of music that, that, that was kind of what launched you. And so what year, Carl, what year are we talking about? Is this like late nineties? This was 1992. I think I put out my first record in late 92. And when you, I think back on it and I go, what an idiot. I put out like eighties greatest hits, uh, CDs at a time when no one wanted, no one wanted or cared about the eighties anymore. It was 92, but DJs still wanted that stuff. And CDs were everywhere and people were kind of rejecting vinyl as funny as that sounds nowadays. Yeah. Uh, That no one, and vinyl was very difficult for a DJ because if you had a bumpy dance floor or whatever, mobile DJs had a hard time with the, uh, that, that aspect of the, uh, the logistics because records skip and CDs were much easier and smaller and less backbreaking. Lighter. Yeah. <laughs> so when you would DJ with vinyl, how many crates would you bring to a typical gig? That sounds uh, crazy. If it was a house party, uh, we would bring, I think if you're thinking in terms of milk crates, we had our own kind of custom crates, but uh, we would bring maybe six crates. And for a wedding, uh, we would have a separate crate of like 40s music and 50s music because there's a pretty wide range of ages at, at weddings. You, so I learned uh, Glenn Miller's greatest hits, Elvis, <laughs> everything I needed to know to uh, DJ a wedding and make the parents of the bride happy. That's good. Knowing <laughs> yeah. your audience, right? Um, I don't know if you know this. You probably don't. Um, back when I when I was like 13, I got this book about like how to make it in the music business, and they had addresses of labels in the back. And I remember I sold, I sent like probably 30 tapes to all these labels, and I got two. I only got two letters back. One was from Select Records because I knew they did the Jerky Boys, and the other <laughs> was a really nice letter from you and Olio saying thank you for submission. We are. Um, Something about how you guys had a lot you were working on, but like wishing me luck. And it was like such a nice letter that I kept it. And no I never told way. you that story. No but, way. Because um, I, do you remember like sending out letters like that? Because I imagine you probably mailed it. Yeah, to me. That, that was probably me personally, because I felt like, uh, and this is going to sound hokey or whatever, but anyone that took the time, especially back then, to write a letter, this is pre-internet you couldn't bulk email a whole bunch of people so i have a much harder time with that nowadays but i felt like you took the time and this was something personal for you and i remember reading stories of the rejection letters that that actors and musicians would get that were just so mean and 
these actors went on to great success and they mocked the people that turned them down. Right. Uh, and I thought, you know, I just don't want to be that guy. I want to be the guy who's encouraging. And even if it's not right for me and legitimately, we were probably just overwhelmed with what we were doing and uh, taking a chance on new music is sort of an expensive endeavor. So depending yeah. on what year it was, if we were involved with uh Brian Wilson or Cindy Lauper or something like that for a small company, all of our attention was focused on those artists at that time. So we, we didn't take too many new music chances depending on the the timing of it. I would have, to be fair, I would have passed on my 13 year old <laughs> demos. It's interesting, Carl, cause you probably heard tapes and you're like, Oh, this artist has potential, but we can't invest in this right now. Or maybe they just need more practice. Like I'm sure you heard a lot of seeds of interesting stuff and I'm sure you heard some really bad stuff too and great stuff. I don't know. You're the spectrum. Yeah. In the early days, we were getting more uh, guitar band stuff than we were electronic. And nowadays, uh, what I find is missing in these submissions that we get is, you know, a guy's in his basement and he's working really hard on beats and he's trying to really make some special music. But there's a whole other element that they're not working on, which is the live performance. And the, the dream of being a, a DJ making 250 grand a night in Vegas is it's one in a zillion. The yeah. more likely scenario is that you're going to be making okay money from your records and okay money from touring. And something will either happen to jump you up to the next level or something will come along in your life like kids or whatever. And you'll you'll put it on the back burner. But you can't just stay in your basement making music. You have to get out there in front of people and see what works. And whether you're a DJ or you're making beats or whether you're a, a rock band picking up guitars for the first time, some guitar hero stuff, uh, <laughs> we, uh, I think you got to get out there. And that's, that's my advice usually uh, when I hear something that has some potential, but they haven't toured, they haven't been out in the real world to see what the... Uh, what the world is like in the live scene. There's only really so much you can do as a smaller uh, independent label, like even with big artists. It's, it's a lot on the artists believing in, in themselves and putting in the work. And also it's very hard to launch someone new who's not willing to put in the work, right? Absolutely. And YouTube has sort of distorted that a bit where people feel mm. like, oh, I don't really have to go out and tour. I can be successful just making a video on my own. And that's how that's my new version of touring. And yes, yeah. it, it does happen. Uh, I've heard these crazy stories about these guys in uh, some remote area of Alaska that are making a fortune off of YouTube videos and touring for them is not practical. Right. So it, it does happen. But I think just in general, the feeling you get and the relationship you build with your audience in a live situation, it's very hard to duplicate that electronically. That's a good point. And let's talk about a man who toured a lot, who started doing home recordings, who we both are <laughs> big fans of, who you worked with extensively, Wesley Willis. Like, how did you and he cross paths? Because that's amazing. Oh, my God. Well, that was such a fun chapter in my life and in my career. I look back on it so fondly. But uh, every band comes from a different source. And a surprisingly large number of artists that I've released came through my friend John Rosner. Uh, he's in the music publishing side of things and music publishing for those of you that don't know that are listening uh, the publisher represents the songwriter 
as opposed to the record label that typically only represents the musical recording. So John was involved with a lot of people writing. I'm not sure how Wesley came to him, but John Mm. knew that I have a very quirky sense of humor and I release comedy and comedy music. And I was a huge doctor, am a huge Dr. Demento fan. Uh, So he said, you got to listen to this. And he was representing uh, Wesley's publishing at the time. And I am so glad that I had listened and I'm so glad that I took a chance on John's recommendation. Uh, we had one hell of a joy ride. <laughs> we went everything from South by Southwest to K-Rock's Almost Acoustic Christmas. He played uh, on the same stage as Alanis Morissette and Bush and Lenny Kravitz and No Doubt. It was, it was unreal. It was just a, such a surreal experience and I, I love Wesley. I loved him then. He's unfortunately passed away, but uh, my memories of him are just the best. And he would play these giant shows with just his keyboard, right? Yeah. He, or did he have his band? Yeah. No, th- uh, no, this was not with the fiasco, the Wesley Willis uh-huh. fiasco. It was just him on his own. And I didn't release any fiasco recordings. I liked them, but I kind of liked the the purity of just what he did. And he played along to pre-programmed beats on his keyboard and so he, there he is uh, at the Universal Amphitheater on this massive stage at K-Rock Acoustic Christmas with just his keyboard and a microphone, and he presses a button that starts the, the pre-programmed beats, and there he goes. And then I'm, I'm backstage, and I'm just like with the love, somewhere in between the love of being a parent and a, a record label <laughs> guy, uh, I go, Wesley, that was great. And he says, Carl Caprioli, where's my check? that was all that was as common of a greeting as hello (laughs) he he thought he was you were like owed him money or something like that or you i don't know i think he thought it was funny and i'll be perfectly honest with you wesley was much smarter than most people thought yeah he he had a certain business sense and uh i think he hid behind uh some of that sort of you know all play naive but I saw I saw him come through uh, with some very clever and astute business observations. Mm. Uh, so it, there was a lot more to Wesley than just the, the the sort of public version of him. Interesting, and that to maintain a career like that and to be so prolific, he had he had a kind of a genius brilliance like and especially in his ability to remember and do these the renderings of the landscapes like kind of a a very interesting talented guy and i yeah people a lot of people don't know i don't think who just hear his music that he really was an amazing visual artist and you have one of his like pieces right in fact he drew it for me at that particular k-rock acoustic christmas and i had him sign it and i don't think he understood what the difference between just printing your name. But anyway, he had printed his name on it for me. And I was telling a, a friend of mine, that if there was a fire in my house, there's a few things that I would take. Uh, my laptop is one. And with that Wesley drawing, he drew it just for me in front of my eyes backstage at the Acoustic Christmas. And I, I've cherished it ever since. I, I probably spent more money on a what do they call it? Like UV glass for the front of it. So it wouldn't fade and all that. I, I treasure it. How did you connect with cool Keith? Uh, again, my friend, John Rosner said, you got to listen to this guy. And I was a little familiar with the ultra magnetic MCs, but, mm. uh, John Rosner, uh, recommended cool Keith as well. 
Come to think of it, I better uh, amend my will and give uh, give a little something to John Rosner in there. <laughs> but yeah, that was a that was a fun ride too. And rap really wasn't my thing, but because yeah. Keith is uh, kind of quirky and fun, that it fit in with the quirky and fun vibe. I was I was working on Sparks Records at the time, and people were saying, "Well, how can you possibly be a label that releases Sparks?" and cool keith i said well it really they're both quirky and smart and unique and i i like them both that's the the common denominator for everything i've done is that i like it and also comedy you've released a lot of very successful comedy records too and that is that like would you consider that a different branch of the label do you brand those differently i in retrospect i probably should have because in the early days uh People would buy every single thing I released. And just if it came like uh, um, Sub Pop is probably the best example. Mm. That if sub, they're, a, they're a great curator of music, they have a very narrow vertical that they release. And you can trust what Sub Pop is going to put out. And there are many labels that are like that. But I was really on a, I didn't have a label mindset. I just wanted to put out music that I liked. So I probably should have broken off comedy into a separate label, uh, but I didn't. And one of the reasons why I didn't is it kind of happened uh, quickly, almost by surprise. Uh, at the In the end times of the, the DJ business uh, with my friend Scott, he would listen to Howard Stern in the morning, and I was listening to K-Rock, uh, Kevin and Bean, and I was listening to um, Mark and Brian on KLOS, and I just could not get why he liked Howard Stern so much. But over time, I got used to it. And as I was listening, there was this guy, Jackie the Joke Man, uh, who was the head writer on the Howard Stern show. And he would, as part of his compensation, he would get a plug halfway through the show, like around 7.30 or so. And then at the end of the show, somewhere around 10 or 10.30. And so I remember hearing these plugs and his CDs were only available through mail order. So mm. one day I called him up and said, hey, I could get your CDs into Tower Records and, you know, we're not going to get into Walmart because of the content, but I can get <laughs> you into independent stores and all that. And he said, look, I get a call three times a week from someone who promises what they can do. What makes you different? I said, I'll see you next week. I'm getting on a plane. So I flew out there and that was the beginning of a, a very long friendship that continues to this day. When he comes out to Vegas, we spend time together. I, I stay at his house in Manhattan and his house on Long Island when I go out to New York. Uh, and that was the beginning of comedy for me. Wow. And what a, uh, so you were kind of up and running because that's such a huge platform for him to plug the albums, right? I'm sure that those were huge successes. Oh, they were very successful. We had yeah. uh, uh, we moved a lot of CD units back in those days, yeah. And it did open doors in other areas. I I clearly remember trying to get through to somebody at Sony Music that was not returning my call for a licensing project. I wanted to re-release some old '80s albums on CD that they were not interested in, and I left a message with the, his assistant. And like 30 minutes later, he calls back and he goes you're Carl Olio. Oh my God, that's so great. Tell me about Howard. Tell me about Jackie, blah, blah, blah. He didn't even want to talk about the licensing deal. He just wanted to talk right. about the Stern show because he was such a fan. Yeah. Uh, but we ended up doing business together and I got the albums that I wanted and 
the way I got the phone call returned, at least in this one case, was because uh, this executive at Sony was just a huge Stern fan, and he recognized my name from mm. the plugs at 7.30 and 10.30, which evolved from just being the mail order plugs to, you know, Jackie's uh, CDs are available nationwide on Oleo Records. So the name Oleo Records just got out there, and Howard had an audience of 20 million people each morning, you know, 10 times the size of a, a David Letterman or a Jay Leno. That's, mm. that's a pretty big number. A large demographic of people. When he was on, when Howard was on terrestrial radio, he would have 20 minute commercial breaks, literally 20 minutes, because there were mm. commercials from his side and the local affiliate, and then he'd come back on. And I would listen to NPR in that 20 minutes and then switch yeah. back to Howard. I knew about how long his break was going to be. And I thought I was uh, unusual in that, but it turned out when the ratings came out, a lot of people were switching between NPR and Howard Stern. <laughs> and it made me realize that it's not just like crass men in their teens and 20s. It's also people that appreciate his uh, sense of humor, yet are up on current events and are family people. So... Uh, it's pretty mm. eye-opening how wide his his audience is. And still, right? The fact that he's still yeah. so popular on satellite radio. Yeah, <laughs> even even more so now. He has a certain level of credibility with uh, the big stars. They come in and they say all sorts of things that they won't say anywhere else about their bedroom habits or whatever else. It's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty amazing what he can get out of people. Putting out that record can help connect you with Dan Castellanata eventually, right? That you had this credibility in the comedy world. It was through a mutual friend that we were connected, and he was he's of course best known as the voice of Homer Simpson and Grandpa Simpson and. Uh, Mayor Joe Quimby and all these other uh, brilliant Simpsons characters. Uh, but he also had a bit of a, a acting career in front of the camera. But he he had this this urge to release music. And he was able to imitate all four of the Beatles perfectly. So mm. he released an album uh, called Tulips, which were sort of a joke on what he could do with his two lips. And oh, yeah. it's essentially a... a Beatles sounding album that he and uh, his wife Deb recorded and it, it I thought it was great and fun but I knew it was not going to be a, a huge commercial success but an opportunity to work with someone of that uh, that stature and of that I love so much I'm a huge Simpsons fan I even watch to this day uh, over the objections of girlfriends and even my kids who just don't understand uh, but uh, I, I couldn't pass it up. So I ended mm. up uh, doing two albums with him and mm. we, we did book tours together, uh, autograph signings in bookstores. That was more his demographic. Uh, and even today I'm working on a, a television show that he's helping me out with. So lots of, lots of good stuff came out of wow. uh, these relationships and you just never know. You never know where they're where you're gonna end up with these things. Would you say you have an album that's been the most commercially successful album, like sound scan wise, or is that something you can't talk about? Oh no, I could talk about it. Um, it, it falls into two categories. One, in the earlier days, uh, we would put out these Christmas compilations, and I was able to track down the copyright owner of a David Bowie and Bing Crosby tune uh, mm. called "Peace on Earth, Little Drummer Boy." 
and it was owned by someone other than a major record label and I was able to find those people and license it and I put it on an album called The Coolest Christmas and I I think we sold well into the hundreds of thousands on that one so for an independent label Jeez. that's like that was unbelievable uh, and then probably the on the single artist side uh, George Lopez would be our best-selling comedy and the story behind that is Jackie left the Stern show and it was like me losing the Beatles. I was, I was crushed. Like, what am I going to do now? It was the biggest uh. thing on the label. And Bob Merlis, who's a, was a publicist with Warner brothers at that time said, you got to go see this guy, George Lopez. And at the time he was a morning show DJ in LA and a stand up comedian. But when I went to the show, I realized there was really something special there. And so the next day I drove to his manager's office with a contract and he didn't have a TV show. He didn't have as much going on at the time, but man, that thing rocketed. Uh, once he got his TV show, Sandra Bullock uh, produced the TV show and essentially discovered mm. George. And that ended up being our, our biggest record or records with George. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what would you say now, like on a quarterly basis, what percentage of income is digital and what percentage is physical? Well, roughly, if you can guess. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'll just say roughly, it's probably 90% digital. And mm. the CD sales that we have are mostly overseas. Uh, we just okay. finished a licensing deal with Sony Japan where they're still interested in our band, Metallica. Uh, because mm. Betalica, we, we even toured there. We went to Tokyo. Uh, so Betalica has a, a a certain something overseas and they still sell on CD. So I'm not sure how that all uh, clicks or why, but overseas CDs are still selling. And of course, vinyl is having a resurgence and that's up and making up part of that 10%, probably less than 5% for my label. Just because of the kind of music we put out isn't really sort of that collector feel that people want to get with, uh, with vinyl. We've done a few uh, vinyl releases together in the, in the, in recent years, the, the zombie dinosaur LP and Jeff sessions, right? That's right. And coming up with, um, <laughs> Dewey decibel. And I always love Carl when I go to a town and I go to the local record store and they, they have it when I know whenever I work with you, when I go on tour to a record store, they're going to have, in stock it always makes me so happy so i just wanted to say that on record that oh, so thanks. to speak <laughs> it's a great feeling to see that on tour well i'm never happy i go into a record store and they have the record and i go why isn't this selling and i go into a record <laughs> store and it's gone i go why don't they have it i'm uh, i'm never happy <laughs> yeah what <laughs> i always wondered if you were at, if you were on a label and you were to shoplift your own album, could you get away with it? Probably not, right? Because it's still stealing, but it's your album. I don't know. You know what? Now, Technically, it is on consignment with the, <laughs> the record store because they could return it. So in some weird, twisted way, it, it still is my property until it's sold. But I don't think I would take that risk. <laughs> Depends how fast you can run, right? Not that fast at my age. <laughs> um, you... So Beatallica, that's a great transition because I had some questions about them. I've learned a lot over the years about parody law from you. And um, their work is interesting because for fans who maybe don't know them, it's like a mashup Beatles and Metallica. And it's very clever and very like funny and 
very dedicated to the joke, but also musically very well produced. And it must be clearing those and orchestrating that as, I mean, as much as you can talk about that must not be an easy feat. <laughs> we, oh, we could probably do an entire podcast just on parody law and the shenanigans that went on with some of these releases, but yeah, the, the, the definition of parody is actually very, very narrow. And what Vitalica does is not parody. So oh. it, it's not considered fair use. And what we're doing is we're mashing together Beatles lyrics, Metallica lyrics, and the melodies from both and combining it into something new. And uh, technically speaking, as I understand it, and I'm not a lawyer, uh, but uh, parody really is making fun of the song or the artist or it's making fun of the work itself. And uh, like, what's a good example? Weird Al. So mm. he did uh, a song called Eat It that was a, not parody, but a joke on uh, Beat It by Michael Jackson. And since it's not really making fun of the original work, he correctly went to the music publishers and said, I'm going to do this uh, funny version of your song. May I have your permission? And some people would say yes, and some people would say no. But under parody law, uh, it's considered fair use, so you don't even have to get permission. But in Weird Al's case, he built a career on going and getting permission so he could then use the tracks in video, which is a whole nother use. It's mm. a whole nother subset uh, called synchronization. So it's better to get permission. And with Betalica, that's what we did. And that was very, very, very complicated and difficult because the most precious music publishing catalog, aside from yours, MC Lars, <laughs> is, <laughs> is the Beatles catalog. And it, it's we got hate mail from people that said that we <laughs> we fouled this beautiful music by, you know, we got Metallica fans were mad. Beatles fans were mad. And we got a lot of calls like, how did you get away with this? And the yeah. only way we could was, number one, because Metallica was super cool about it. First, mm. they sent a cease and desist and said, don't do this. But once the <laughs> band kind of learned what we were all up to. Uh, in fact, that's how I found out about it. I read in the news about the cease and desist and I contacted okay. the band and I said, let's go legit. Let's try and, you know, let's try and get the proper permission. And Metallica became a fan of Metallica, even invited them backstage to shows. And they agreed, I, I can't disclose the terms, but they agreed to a very favorable situation with us uh, for their side. But then now okay. we have to go and clear the music through the Beatles publishing catalog, which was owned by... Michael Jackson and uh, his company called Northern Songs. Well, mm. Northern Songs was the publishing catalog, but Michael Jackson now acquired it and Sony invested the money into the catalog. So there was a lot of debt there. And I think, I'm not sure, but I think that they saw this as a way to generate some revenue and to help recoup some of their investment. So much of it had to do with timing, that we, mm. we were asking the question at just the right time. So we ended up doing three albums with Metallica, and we got all the proper permission when we went back with for the fourth one. And I won't name names, but somebody at Sony said, I will never grant permission for another one of these records again. In fact, I'm going to dig through the archives and find out how this happened in the first place. And if there's any way I can stop it, I will. <laughs> mm, 
Oh my gosh. Like, serious. Okay. So we, we had, everything was airtight and you know, we, we did everything above board. So we were just fine for the older albums, but they definitely, the new changing of the guard at Sony, we we're out of the, uh, Beatles business. <laughs> so you're capped at three. It's three, right? Well, we ended up doing uh, an album called Masterful Mystery Tour that was uh, as <laughs> if, good. yeah, all their, everything. The band is so clever. I got to tell you, yeah. my experience with Beatallica really opened my eyes to how clever musicianship can be and are really talented. These, these musicians are unbelievably skilled in their crafts they're actually music instructors and they study music and the way they blended things together was masterful but anyway the last record that we did was uh more like if metallica had recorded beatles songs so we weren't okay. able to mash them together uh, and so that record wasn't quite as successful and not quite as satisfying for the band so, so it's cut more like covers Exactly, like Metallica yeah. covering the Beatles. So we we yeah. had we had to stay true to a uh, a cover interpretation, which that is considered fair use. If you pay the statutory rate, which is set forth by law, we can you and I could cover a Beatles song or a Zeppelin song as long as we paid the the proper rate and followed the proper procedures. That's considered fair use. And so, going back to the parody thing, I remember reading that, for example, Weird Al's. Um, Achy Breaky Song, which is a parody of Achy Breaky Heart, which is lampooning how the song is so annoying and the commercialization of country. It's a, it's, he's, it's a, it's an actual parody as opposed to a funny version because he's commenting on the original. Is, and is that right in my understanding that that defines a legal fair use parody? Yeah. If I were a judge in that case, I would say that is a parody. That qualifies as a parody. But yeah. then, then the problem for Weird Al comes in. That's the parody laws apply to audio recordings. And again, I'm not a lawyer. This is just my understanding. So disclaimer. Right. <laughs> uh, but then, what happens if he wants to go make a music video? That's a whole nother set of permissions. He has to go back to the same people, the music publisher, to get permission. And they're going to say no because it was adversarial to start with. It was recorded mm. without permission. So Weird Al wisely says. To the music publisher right in advance this is going to be a song i want to clear the music video and before i go through all the time and expense to do it i want to clear the the rights to record the song and to use it in a music video and synchronization and so, that was the oh sorry go ahead yeah that, so th that's why even though it, maybe it is parody he's he and his people are very smart to go out and uh, get all the proper permissions and pay the proper royalties that's what happened with the Eminem couch potato lose yourself lose yourself parody because Eminem denied the use of a video. So that's interesting because it's a different synchronization legality. And I didn't I never realized that they were separate, but that makes sense. And I guess that's what happened with that poodle hat thing. Exactly. And that's yeah. that's what he's trying to avoid. So a synchronization license is at will. You can say yes or say no, or you can demand any amount of money. Whereas a compulsory license, a mechanical license is set forth, the, the amount is set forth and it can be, you can record anyone's song as long as you comply with the rules of the statute. This is a very educational podcast because I know a lot of content creators yeah. are li listen and um, that's, that's cool. You can lay it all out. And it's now though with YouTube, I don't know. I don't know how, 
I mean, I want most YouTube parodies probably did not get permission. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting, but yeah, well, that's a whole nother conversation. Like the rules change. So what can you get away with? And, but now YouTube demonetizes parodies too. So yeah. Yeah. You can, you could pretty much upload anything you want to YouTube, but if the copyright owners, uh, either the visual content the songwriters, which is represented by the music publisher or the record label, uh, if any one of those three object, they can tell YouTube that they want to take it down or to participate in monetization. So you're really, you can upload almost anything you want, but you're running the risk of uh, one of those three coming up and saying, hey, you stole this from me. So yeah. in my experience, there's very little enforcement beyond YouTube just taking something down and you get a, a black mark on your YouTube account. So you don't want to do that too many times. Mm. So if you're if you're an artist and you really believe in the song, you've done something very creative, I would encourage you to get permission. And if you, you know, if you can't get permission and you just decide to say, forget it, I've got nothing to lose and upload it to YouTube, that happens every day. There's so much content uploaded to YouTube, it's hard for them to keep track of, but eventually yeah. And if it gets enough traction, uh, you're going to get a phone call or uh, an email from somebody, or or all the money you think you'll make will go towards the uh, go towards the people you lampooned, which is fair because it's their song, really. right? Yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely a balance, but you can make your life a whole lot easier if you just seek out that permission. And in my experience, even as a, a little independent label, uh, they're they're usually willing to give you an answer. You don't get stonewalled uh, too often, but you know, we have been rejected by some of the biggest names in music. I'm proud to say. <laughs> hey, um, so when you so in yesterday, there's a scene where Ed Sheeran recommends "Hey Dude" as a as a, instead of "Hey Jude," and I wonder if he heard the Metallica, or that's just like a was an easy coincidence. Like, what do you did? You, what did you did? You, have you seen that movie? What do you think? Well, I I had no idea the reference was in the movie until I'm uh -huh. sitting there in the movie theater. Uh, and when that part came up, I jumped out of my seat. I couldn't believe it. Right. Because it, what are the chances? <laughs> so I yeah. immediately texted the band and said, did you guys know? And they had just recently found out that it was in the movie. Okay. And they said there was some kind of a connection with someone involved in the film, but there was no compensation or anything like that. It just, it was either somewhere between a happy coincidence and their awareness of Metallica. That was one of the better known Beatallica songs as well. So, right. so I think that is a little bit of a wink and a nod to Beatallica. Since we're talking about content creation, we're talking about your forays into the entertainment business. If any people are, anyone's listening, young or old, entrepreneurs, um, people who work, maybe work for, for other media companies, but want to have this entrepreneurial adventure like you've had, what advice might you give a younger person who wants to start a record label in 2019? Is there anything you would say to them? Well, to be perfectly blunt, there are much better business models these days than a record company because the, okay. the, the revenue from streaming and all that is, is relatively small. So the way I think about it is my record label is like a copy machine, that a business needs a copy machine. It's a way to make... Uh, digital or other copies, but it's not enough to build a business on. You don't want to build a business by running a copy machine. Uh, the new record label is about services. 
And each one of my artists needs something different. So for example, you and I were working on vinyl together because that's something that you need. And mm. I have other artists, uh, Perry Grip, our mutual friend. Uh, there are things, projects that I do with him. There are services I provide for him, including order fulfillment and shipping and that kind of stuff that he's not interested in doing on his own, but he handles much of his own digital distribution on his own. So I think the new record label is actually a service-based business where the label service part of it, the distribution part of it is just one small aspect of it. So some of my artists prefer me to continue uh, distributing for them and we add on to it with other bits. And then some artists have, uh, uh, when the licenses expire, when the deals expire, they take their records back and they do that part on their own. And we work out other areas to work together. And hmm. so it's about service. It's not really about starting a record label in the traditional sense. Uh, if you wanna be a businessman and work with creative people, the best way to do it is to find out what they need, what's missing. Mm. Uh, many artists don't have the business focus. Just by their nature, they're artistic and they have uh, a drive to be an artist, which is very different than a drive for business. And my feeling is that that can be provided by a third party if there's trust there. The, the entertainment world is filled with stories of managers, agents, accountants taking advantage of people. So for me, it's relationship-based. So the advice that I would give to someone who's thinking about starting a, a record label is to think about it as a service. And the label is just one small part of it. It's the copy machine in your office. And the rest of it is about that relationship with your artist and providing services that they need. Interesting. And mm -hmm. so along those lines, Carl, being able to be flexible is an asset and being able to be nimble and small, like not having a giant staff, right? Like learning what to do on your own is probably a, very helpful to be a one person operation. I would imagine, I don't know. Yeah, it definitely is. When, when we shot the video for Guitar Hero uh, in my warehouse in Torrance, at that yeah. time I had two warehouses, uh, a lot of office space. I've had, you know, not a ton of people working for me, but maybe, at my peak, maybe six employees and then subcontractors on top of that. And much of it had to do with the physical part of the business mm. that we were moving around a lot of records. I had pallet jacks and uh, a forklift, which by the way, somewhere out there on the internet is pictures of me teaching Perry grip how to drive a forklift. <laughs> <laughs> so I, aside from the, the fun part of owning a forklift like that, uh, I don't miss the, these giant warehouses. And in fact, if, if I can be a little sappy with you, I feel bad about the amount of plastic that I've put out into the world. Mm. And uh, I hope to someday be able to find a way to correct that. Uh, but there are millions of discs, plastic boxes out there with my name on it. And that makes me feel bad. So I don't miss the mm. warehouse. I don't miss the physical distribution part of it. Uh, now I'm a, a two-person operation. I have an assistant. Uh, I mostly work out of the house, but I hire subcontractors for artwork and publicity and, and other services that I don't really need a full-time person to work on. Uh, we just released a single from the band Smash Mouth, and oh, it, yeah. it was just me and my assistant, and we hired out people to do the radio promotion. We hired out people to do the publicity and and work it that way. So you don't really need to have the overhead of a big staff or a big warehouse to hold on to things these days. 
So it's the the business certainly has changed, and uh, it's more suitable for me at this particular age and this time in my life to be a little bit more independent and flexible that way. Um, where do you keep your physical stock? Uh, one, one of my two garages here is filled uh. with Perry Grip. Uh, space unicorns, plush mascots, and uh, CDs. And when my artists go on tour, uh, they they don't keep a lot of stock themselves. And they'll say, hey, I need 120 CDs sent to Poughkeepsie, and I'll ship those out for them. So what I Mm. still hold on to these days uh, is CDs for my actively touring artists, uh, merch for artists like Perry, uh, that sort of thing. There's just not a lot of deep catalog in there. But right. some people are still having, you know, the the urge to buy a, a CD, and from time to time, you know, I'll I'll get a call or a message through the website that they're looking for something, uh, and if I still have it, I'll ship it out to them. Sometimes for nothing, yeah. but <laughs> not always. Would so you're doing Metallica stuff to Japan? Do you manufacture it over there, or do you ship the crates internationally? How does in, that work? Uh, in the case of Metallica with Sony Music, they actually manufacture there. But in most other situations, uh, the the volume is not uh, economically viable. There, it just wouldn't make sense for them to ramp up physical production. Mm-hmm. So for those people, we we export if we have the the permission to do that. What is a typical day like for you? And maybe there's not a typical day, but um, I'm always curious, like how you spend your time as an entrepreneurial label owner. Well, no day, no two days are the same, but just yeah. in, in general, I get a little exercise in the morning and that gets me going. And by the time I get to my laptop and check my email, quite a bit has flowed in overnight. So I, I go through my emails to see what's important. I catch up a little bit on industry news and then I work on new projects. I'm currently uh, developing a TV show and a couple of other live projects. So I, I put my creative work in there when I feel like I'm not being overwhelmed with kind of the day-to-day catching up with email and banking and royalty statements and that kind of stuff. Mm. So it, it's a bit of a balance. During royalty statement time, uh, it dominates everything I do for a week, and then I can get creative again. So no day is, is typical, but generally speaking, there's a bit of business in the morning, gets a little more creative, uh, in the middle of the day. And then at night I take care of the other, the responses that are needed through email or contracts and that sort of thing. What do you do to maintain your love of music and comedy? Like how do you not become so bogged down that it becomes routine and boring? Like what do you do to be passionate about what you, what you create, you know? I think going out to live shows, it reminds me of what I really enjoy. And when I'm listening to uh, uh, iTunes or Spotify and I'm hearing the music and replaying the music that I've enjoyed for so many years, I will sometimes find something new and exciting there. But really it's going to events like South by Southwest. When I'm there and I'm in a live situation, I go, oh yeah, this is why I like the music business. I forgot. Because when you're stuck in your house or in your office, you you sort of lose track of the magic, the real magic that is music. And mm-hmm. it's a way to convey all sorts of emotions. It's a way to share your feelings with people. And 
it's something that even if you're not a creator, you can use music to find common ground with other people. And in a vacuum, in your own space, there really isn't that camaraderie, that sharing. But when you're in, at a live venue, whether it's a stinky little punk club uh, and you're exchanging sweat with the stranger next to you, or whether you're in a, a, a theater sit, seated in a comfortable seat enjoying the music of Brian Wilson, there is that camaraderie. And that's what keeps me going in the music business. It's, it's getting out and seeing live performances and being reminded of the magic that is the music business. So, and that is the human element, right? Like the fact that music is really communication and to share that with other people in a physical space, that's what it's all about, right? And that can never be replicated. Absolutely. And that's that's the part that sometimes gets lost with uh, working in your basement and putting together the perfect beats. Uh, it, how are, How is that going to work for other people? And I think the greatest art, whether it's a painting or a song, uh, it stimulate something in you and it's it it's something that's enjoyed outside of your basement so my my personal feeling is the live setting is the best way to have that experience and it mm. it is what makes us human it's sharing that that art and sharing these experiences and you know again the i'm so privileged i'm so fortunate to be working in this industry and fortunate to be working with people like you and uh helping share your art with the world that's what it's about Thanks, Carl. That's sweet. And same. And I'm glad that through my now, I've been doing it not as long as you, but I've been doing it a while. I've been 16 years touring and putting stuff out. Um, I'm grateful that I've been able to like select a group of people and work with people I consider friends and um, people who I like, you know, actually like as people and cre creating this like family in the industry that I think is hard to do. And I think, it, I think not many people are fortunate as fortunate to be able to like maintain these long friendships and, you know, people and bands I've toured with and like, yeah. And people on, on the business side and the music side and producers, it's just, I feel special about that. And I was thinking today how the blessing of music is everything external to it. Music's great, but the, the human element and the stories and the friendships are really what make it worth it because neither of us are, in it for the money necessarily <laughs> first. Well, it's not. It's nice yeah. to make a living, but certainly yeah. the most satisfying part is exactly what you described and why I would fly across the country to be at your wedding on your special day because I I have that connection with you. I feel like uh, it's it's more than business. It's more than music. We're I feel like we're friends, and uh, I try to have that same relationship with all my artists. Some more than others but uh that that's the magic we're gonna post this um in a few weeks but is there anything in 2020 you want to plug or or talk about or is it if or is it all secret i just wanted to give you an opportunity to plug anything you want hmm. well i i am working on a, a scripted sitcom at the moment so if anybody out there in the podcast mc lars world uh can help with that sort of thing that's what I'm working on next is getting that shopped. That's cool. So yeah. TV is the next chapter. Yeah. And uh, also a, a live show that uh, I'll have to talk to you about sometime soon uh, once I can reveal more details. But uh, yeah, moving a little bit more into the the live space and possibly television. So you'll st probably stay in Vegas. Does it feel like home? Uh, it does. Home it does feel like home. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to stay here forever. It's it's a yeah. very business friendly state, 
but it also is lacking a little something and I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's a lot of people that are, uh, in transition here. They're coming from somewhere, going for going somewhere. Uh, it doesn't really have that sort of settled feeling for me just yet, but I lived mm. in the same place for 50 years. So it might be hard to get uh, a settled feeling here after only four years. So 50 more yeah. and then you'll move. <laughs> yeah, well, right. I, do people, this is unrelated, but do people, Vegas residents go like get lunch on the strip and hang out and walk there? Or is it kind of like that's kind of touristy and that's not really where you spend any time? Well, the, the strip is expensive. Uh, a beer uh-huh. on the strip could cost you 15 bucks and the same Ooh. beer at a local pub could cost you five. So that and okay. now, now the the big casinos are charging parking. So mm. on top of that $15 beer, you're going to pay 20 bucks to be there for two hours. So it's really not a locals friendly place. So the locals yeah. quickly learn about the, even if you're a gambler, there are plenty of locals casinos uh, that are not on the, the strip. So generally speaking, the locals stay away from the strip unless there's some really good reason to go there. So if you have friends in town, you'll, you might go, but it's like, yeah, it's not, it's not where you hang out. That's good. That's interesting. That's what I always wondered. And that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, a Cirque du Soleil yeah. show when family comes to town, then they really want to see the Beatles love or, or another Cirque show, you know, I'll, I'll brave the strip. And my dad came to town, uh, recently and, uh, we went off to a restaurant that was on the strip. So, uh, there, there are reasons to go, but just not on a regular basis. Where can fans follow your updates and uh, social media? Like, do you have any Twitter or where do you recommend people who want to know what Oleo Entertainment is up to? Well, we've got our Facebook page. We have Twitter, which is at Oleo and Instagram, which is also at Oleo and it's spelled O-G-L-I-O. And you could follow our latest and greatest on those social outlets. That's awesome that you kept it uniform. That's well, rare. <laughs> I, I was I was an early adopter, and if that's another bit of advice for someone who's starting a label or getting into it, adopt everything. I was an early adopter to. That's how I got these. I got awesome domain names because I was an early adopter on the internet. As soon as I heard about Instagram, I signed up with my personal name and with the company name. So yeah. as soon as you hear about these things, sign up. It doesn't cost you anything, but you lock in a really cool username that way. And also, you're an early adopter with the transition of digitizing rare records. I mean, hard to find records. An early adopter and yeah. like fulfilling that marketplace. So being able to know about the proprietary platforms and technologies and changing like media, those are all really helpful tricks that you've capitalized on for decades. Maybe just being lucky. I'll count it. I'll, <laughs> some luck, some timing. Uh, but I, all in all, I feel fortunate just to have be surrounded with people that help me uh, realize these things. How many years then would you say, starting from when you started Oleo Entertainment? How many years would you say that is? Do you have a do you know? Uh, started in ninety two, so we're in our twenty seventh year. Wow, that's yeah. <laughs> a lot of years. That most labels, I I can't. There's probably not a lot of labels that have been around that long. <laughs> uh, no, that, yeah. that's that's true. They usually get swallowed up or move along to something else. Uh, but we're we're still plugging away, not releasing as much as we used to in the the heyday. But we're still around providing those services to our artists. That's what's up. Well, Carl, yeah. I appreciate you being on today's episode and all your wisdom and kindness. Thank you. 
Oh, absolutely. My pleasure and my honor. Thank you so much for having me. Dewey Decibel is coming out on vinyl, distributed by Oleo. Uh, Needle Juice is the uh, manufacturer, I think. And that will be in stores this 2020. And uh, be sure to check out Carl's social media, Oleo, uh, to find out everything else they're working on. And that's what's up. All right, cool. Oh, it, let's end with something. Like, Is there a song that you've released that I didn't ask you this, but maybe there's a song we can play that that you particularly are fond of that we can end the interview with. Because I always like to end with a song that connects to the interview. Hmm. I don't know. My my absolute favorite song of yours is Guitar Hero Hero. Can we do that one? Yeah, let's do that. That's sweet. And this has it. a video that we filmed at your warehouse, and you were hugely helpful. It, this video wouldn't have existed without you, so... I, I, yeah, I appreciate you wanting to play this. Yeah. My, my daughter, Casey, uh, was a guitar hero fan and my son, Kevin is even in the video. So it's a, it's a, a personal experience as well. Wait, Kevin, is he one of the kids in the playground? Yeah. Oh, he was young then. How old is he now? He's he 21. College? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. I know he's studying engineering in college. Who would have known? <laughs> That's what's up. Okay. Well, this is guitar hero hero featuring, Perry Grip and uh, Paul Gilbert. Yes. Two legendary, amazing artists. So, all right. Thank you, Carl. All right. Thank you.
That was Guitar Hero Hero. Beating Guitar Hero Doesn't Make You Slash, featuring Perry Grip and Paul Gilbert. What a lineup. There's a music video for that song directed by my friend Sean Donnelly, who also did the Flow Like Poe and Ahab videos, and did that show for Comedy Central, Jeff and Some Aliens, which is pretty dope. So check that out if you haven't. Uh, that video is ridiculous, but we had a lot of fun making it. And uh, now it's time for the MC, the MC Lars, Lars. Patreon, Patreon Larson, Larson of, the, of week. the week. This week we have an old friend, an old collaborator, one of my best buds in the world, a dude I went to college with, my friend DJ. Take it away, DJ. Hey, man. This is DJ. Uh, just wanted to call in and share a memory with everyone. Uh, we've been friends for 18 years, which is literally half of my life. So obviously there's more than one memory to choose from. But this is just one that will always stand out in my mind. So um, this had to be this had to be around 2003. Uh, we're at Stanford mixing a track in one of the Karma studios. And I'm sure you remember that not just anyone could get into the Karma studios. You had to be enrolled in, you know, some Karma-related class. Then and only then would you get a special ID, you know, ID card access, which would unlock the door to all the studios. So lucky for us, I had a key card, which meant I was able to get you into the studio to mix this track. So anyway, it's about one in the morning, and I hadn't slept in over 24 hours at this point because not only is it finals week, but I, I had also been up the night before finishing the mix on a completely different album for uh, Infinite Records, which was this cool student-run record label that I was a part of. Needless to say, uh, I'm exhausted and barely hanging on as we slowly chip away at the mix, which, by the way, I don't even remember which song we were working on. Uh, I know you do, though, because your memory is insane, so please remind me next time we talk. Anyway, at some point, you say to me, hey, I'm going to go hit the restroom, take a whiz real quick. I'll be right back. No problem. Uh, you walk out, the door locks behind you, and I say to myself, this seems like a good time to lay down on the floor and close my eyes. Not going to fall asleep, just going to lay down on the floor and close my eyes. So I lay down on the floor, close my eyes, and the next thing I remember is you banging as loud as you possibly can on the door, which freaks me out. So I jump up and open the door and look at you like, hey, what's with all the aggressive knocking? You know, I'm right here. The studio is like the size of a bedroom, so I think that a regular knock would have been sufficient. Uh, well, as it turns out, I was wrong. You had been, you've been banging on the door for almost 30 minutes while I was completely unconscious on the floor of the studio. Uh, but, the, but the crazy thing is, I don't even remember you being mad at all. You were just so relieved to get back in that you didn't say much other than to let me know you had been locked out for a while. And then we went back to work and finished the track. But every time I think about that, it makes me laugh. And, uh, this is, this is just one of, several stories that involve me falling asleep at inopportune times, but I'll save those for another day. Uh, well, my friend, uh, it's been an incredible 18 years of friendship, full of memories. Thank you for all the memories. Uh, I'm looking forward to making many more. But anyway, I love you, buddy. Uh, bye. I'll talk to you. Well, honestly, I was going to say, maybe there's a... Okay, I'll tell one last last memory. Um, this, I, I remember the very first time I saw you freestyle or I heard you freestyle. So, you know, I, I, 
I didn't know that you were capable of doing it. And it was at the Coho at Stanford in probably, I don't know, it was pretty early. It was probably like 2001, 2002, something like that. Um, pretty, not too long after, you know, meeting you. And we were doing a show, but then there was like a part of the show where you're like, I'm going to freestyle. So I just sat off to the side so I could watch. And, uh, you, you spit some rhyme about running around Lake Log. I don't even know what it was, but like the audience erupted and I was just blown away. I was like, oh my God, this guy, <laughs> I had no idea you could do it. And, um, and ever since then, you've never seen to amaze me with your ability to like come up with rhymes off the top of your head, which is one of the most like I think that is a very difficult skill to master. So hats off to you, my friend. Uh, that's another great memory. So anyway, love you, and uh, I will talk to you talk to you later. All right, bye. I remember that DJ, and I remember how you can fall asleep in the most surprising situations, like rehearsal in Australia in, with a full band in the rehearsal studio, just lying on the ground going to sleep. It's like a superpower you have. So thank you, DJ. I know you have a million MCLR shirts, but I'm going to send you another one. And uh, thank you for calling in. This episode has been very cool. Um, I want to talk about real quick a documentary I saw this year that was really interesting. My favorite movie of the year, definitely. It's called Everybody's Everything. And it's the story of Lil Peep. And uh, it's interesting because you know, I came up in this underground hip hop world that was where I was sampling these emo bands and referencing the punk culture I came from. And here it is 20 years later, almost the young generation growing up on that just as much and having this like emo punk influence in the SoundCloud rap. Lil Peep, his story is super tragic. How, for those of you who don't know, he overdosed on his tour bus in Arizona and um, died right when everything was about to blow up. But it's a great documentary. And I really recommend it. Everybody's Everything. I saw it on Amazon. And uh, yeah. And it came out with an album of posthumous stuff that he that they finished or stuff he'd almost worked on. Um, it was produced by Terrence Malick, who is a famous director. Um, anyway, check that out. I wanted to recommend that. Next week, we have an interview with my sister, Sarah Nielsen, talking about some old school stories. Very cool to have her on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I was home for the holidays. So she and I sat down and hashed it out, got into it. So check that out next week. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you again for another amazing year of support and love. And I can't believe I still get to do this. Um, and yeah, Happy New Year, everyone. NerdcoreTour.com for the tour dates. Patreon.com slash MCLars to sign up and become a supporter. And lots of new music coming out next year. So thank you, everyone. And I'll see you next decade. Peace.